and the way it's functioning and working itself out? Is it rooted in and informative of a constant vision that I'm confident is a result of my relationship with God? That, that's kind of where we're going to go with dealing with the vision that we started on Tuesday with the apostle who is driving home an archetypal point in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 which makes the topic of vision in relationship to the archetypal point. The archetype is what? The temple. The temple. Don't ever forget that. The archetype is the temple. It becomes the framework for understanding God in his redemptive glory and in his objective of redeeming humanity and time, the temple. So that's what I was telling you about. And, and, and what, I, what I want you to be thinking about as we look at it is the big picture scenario of the temple. Our relationship to it, according to how the apostle has instructed us, right? He has instructed us that there is a profound intimacy correlation between the temple and ourselves. In most cultures, in most parts of the world, the temple is this, this archaic, ancient object that basically gives men and women from a kind of distant view, a perspective on, on, on the world that is and maybe the world that is to come or parallel worlds because all temples give you iconography. They are graphics because graphics are pictures that paint lessons that um, escape the tediousness of words. All temples do that. So this is kind of what we're getting ready to talk about. The iconographic nature of temples is that when you approach it, you begin to enter into mysteries and codes and symbolism and typology and patterns. And people that actually appreciate the efficiency of temple paradigms know what I'm talking about. This is no different for the temple of God in the Bible. But if you were Hindu, you would know what I'm talking about. There's like no part of a temple in the Hindu tradition that is not filled with iconography and symbolism and uh, graphics and cryptographics that don't imply and assert some kind of profound spiritual meaning. Does that make some sense? Right. So I'm driving it home because your Bible does that too. Right. Um, the the uh, sort of paradigm of the paradiso or paradise of God in the in the beginning narrative is filled with this same kind of imagery, symbolism, typology that is an efficiency of code to help us understand grander things that could take forever to talk about within the limitations of, let's just say, propositional speech, right? So we get the garden, we get the rivers, we get the trees, we get humanity, we get God, we get heaven, we get earth. That's what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to lay this foundation for you so you won't be lost when, when we start teaching, because you should actually know this as a child of God. One of the things that you should know is that the Bible is a book of visions by which you understand its propositional truth. Did that make some sense? You, you, you have to know that 
Vision and prophecy go hand in hand in Scripture. And therefore, you and I want to be predisposed to understanding symbolism and typology and, and metaphor and, and deep iconography and, and, and deep, uh, you know, pictographic concepts in, in the scripture because that's how, that's how you understand. So God speaks in, in, in visions and prophecies and dreams, right? And that what we learned in Acts 2 a couple of weeks ago when Peter explained, this is that which Joel the prophet did say would occur. Your young men will dream dreams and your daughters will prophesy and your old men will see visions. Well, that's how God has worked with humanity from the beginning. Because we haven't always been literate. And how beautiful it is for us to understand that God deals with us as you would a child. Because that's how children learn. Children are much more audiographic than they are what we would call phonetic and propositional. They're much more audiographic. They're much more visual audiographic than they are phonetic. And this is why a lot of our kids have a hard time learning basic grammar structure and and modalities of reading if it's not a look-see program, right? Because what God has made us to be able to do is visualize in the context of communication. So your Bible is filled much more with God coming to men and women in dreams and visions and then correspondingly speaking about his will and purpose. That's what I'm laying down. So what I want you to be thinking about. So once we get through with our exercise to go into the question, how does God's vision correspond with your practice or behavior? How connected are you to the reality of what God is up to both? in terms of what he's done and what God is doing. I'm going to revisit just a tad of what we dealt with in Ezekiel chapter 47 and draw out what I think Paul is calling our attention to in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. So just be ready for the Q&A because I want us to dialogue about it before we move into chapter 4 of 1 Corinthians. Remember, we're dealing with order out of what? And that's a, that's a, that's a, um, this is a neo-paradisial uh, a principle, is it not? Is not the Genesis narrative in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth and the earth was without form and void, tohu bohu, and God created order out of chaos. That gives you insight into the purpose of God or the teleos of God or the objective of God within the framework of his handiwork. And You and I already know if you're a solid Christian that what happens in the Old Testament is fulfilled centrally in Christ and in us in the New Testament. So on the one hand, I'm dealing with a big object called the temple, and it runs all the way from the Genesis to to Revelation, as you know. But that temple is not so far out there that it doesn't immediately and directly impact at a profound personal level me. Are you? According to what Paul said, didn't he say you are the temple of the living God? Is that what he said? So now if Paul said that you and I are the temple of the living God, does God utilize his people as a pictograph, as an image, as a complexity of symbolic representation and mysterion and and typology and patterns? Does he do that with us? Of course he does. That's what your Bible also says. You and I are, are, are epistles written and known on the hearts of men, right? Is that what we are? Good. So, so as we kind of objectively look back at that temple, I'm going to actually bring it home and ask the question, 
you know, what does that mean for me to be the temple of the living God? Part of this uh, larger archetypal paradigm that goes from Genesis to Revelation. And, and am I functioning in a way that I maintain a high level of consciousness around, around that, that? We could confine that to witness, too, couldn't we? Is the temple a witness? Of course it is. So that is, uh, that's kind of what we are getting at there. I think I'll leave that. Let me open in a word of prayer, and I'm going to mess with you guys a little bit theologically, and I pray that you guys would be um, willing to explore with me the, um, the, the wisdom of the apostle whose job it is, is to help build God's temple. Father, thank you for your mercy and your kindness. Thank you for the family that's out. Thank you for those that are yet maybe coming and those that are watching. Um, you know the desire, aspiration, and drive of every one of us, our hearts, and uh, we want to know you better and we want to be able to be more efficient in our calling. To know you is to know ourselves because to know you is to know Christ and to know Christ in the fullness of our union with him is to know ourselves better. This is just the case and we're thankful for it. So root us and ground us in your word first by cleansing and purging and washing and sanctifying us in the blood of the one who laid down his life for us. And then by rooting us and grounding us in our standing in Jesus, who is our righteousness, immutable, unchangeable, irrevocable, irrevocable Christ in us and us in Christ and and we in you, Father, and you in us, by your Spirit. So, Spirit of God, settle us down and open our understanding and help us to grasp the importance of the events in 1 Corinthians 3 and, and map them onto ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. So what I want to do in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, I'm going to start at verse 16. I'm going to read through verse 23. And then I'm just going to start talking about some stuff in relationship to point two. And three in your outline, point number two in your outline, their collaboration was a sign of unity. You guys remember where we started talking about that? And if that proposition makes sense to you under point number two, their collaboration was a sign of unity. I'm actually now showing you how the temple looks in its functional process in the world. Okay, that's what I'm sharing with you as uh, an assertion that when one is operating as a temple paradigm, you will see collaboration, you will see unity, you will see integration, you will see a witness manifested by their behavior. You are my witnesses. Okay, so that's what we're learning with Paul in uh, point number two in this title. We'll, we'll go deeper than that. Then point number three is which where we're going to really dig into if we get time tonight. He is committed to the blueprint and the what? That's what Paul is going to teach us. But look at verse, uh, verse 16 through um, 23. Again, know you not that you are the temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you. We talked about how huge that was, right? Like that's enormous, right? That's like enormous. Uh, the Spirit of God dwells in you. If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy. For the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. There is a gigantic warning there, right? And now we're creating a kind of tension between what we are and maniacal forces that want to destroy what we are. See that? Does that come home? On the one hand, you are the temple of the living God. The Spirit of God dwells in you. Don't you know this? We go, Yes. If any man defile the temple, him God will destroy. Whoa! 
The temple must be important to God. That follows. I have to wake you up because words are supposed to do that when you read them. Notice what it says in verse 18. Uh, Let no man deceive himself. Now, you see that proposition? Let no man deceive himself. What Paul is doing as he's speaking in broadcasting format to the whole church is, here's what we say we are. Here's what God says we are. Here's the danger, the tearing down. Let no one in the whole of the community be deceived about what we should be and what is also happening as a kind of cloud and storm and tempest constantly assaulting that what we call grand narrative. Does that make some sense? Right, because there are clouds and storms descending and assaults against the grand narrative. You ought to know this. It's epitomized in Jesus. Was Jesus loved when he came into this world or was he constantly under assault? See what I'm getting at? Here he is, the epitome of the temple, as he said he was. And yet, as the epitome of the temple, he's doing what I'm trying to drive home to you and me. He's operating out of vision. He operates out of consistent clarity of vision. And I'm saying that's supposed to map onto us since we have the dignity of being the same thing that Jesus is to the Father. But we do have to be careful because as we are exploring and engaging in the witness testifying, there is a lot of temptation coming at us. A lot of temptation, right? And and that temptation can actually compel men to change teams and become a terror down and not a builder up. You can get lost in that fall, couldn't you? This is what Paul is getting at. I love what he's doing, and I'm glad I got your attention now because this is kind of really what I wanted you to wanted you to to understand. Something beautiful as the temple is under the constant assault of a system in this world that is hell-bent on taking over God's place. And then we say the temple of the the Lord is you. Uh Uh-oh. See what I'm getting at? This is not funny, really. I mean, y'all can laugh and rejoice, but I'm just trying to tell you, it's really not that funny. Because if you can draw out the syllogism, what you know is you are constantly under attack. If you can draw the syllogism out, which I don't think people always want to do that, but I'm just telling you, if you own that, 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 that archetypal pattern of being a temple, just understand this. Temples are constantly being destroyed by anti-forces. All right, good. Verse 18, let no man deceive you. If any man among you seems to be wise in this world, let him become a fool that he may be wise. Extremely important to capture, again, that that paradoxical terminology, right? Because everything about our world prides itself on human wisdom. And we've already asserted that Paul has been dealing with that kind of uh, paradoxical dichotomy from chapter one, right? That, that the wisdom of the world is foolishness to God, but the wisdom of God is foolishness to the world. So there is this sort of competition taking place in our world around wisdom. And everybody's being challenged around wisdom. And I can see what Paul is saying here. He's saying to the people at Corinth who historically have prided themselves in the embrace of all kinds of Sophia's. All kinds of wisdom. 
This is their history. This is Greek culture. This is Roman culture. They love to lift up men and women who are mystics, who are called the wise ones. And here's what Paul says. He says, for the wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. For it is written, he taketh the wise in their own what? Ah, the wise of this world are at war with the God of the wisdom of another world and the God of the wisdom of that other world actually engages them in the battle. Is that what it says? And he takes them in their own what? All right, so now God's giving you insight into the strategy of the divine, how he actually flips the script on them. Right now, that can be more fully expanded on. All I want to do is wake you up to the reality that God fully knows we're in a warfare and he wants us to wake up to it and and understand his strategies and methodologies. Right. So so God is calling his people to always have the capacity for the flexibility of perception that is able to operate in an inversion process of seeing things the way that God does. And if you and I are, um, if we are too rigid in our capacity for being flexible in our, in our perception, we can get trapped within the parameters of time because of the way the enemy operates. He can knock us off of our feet at least for a season because we fail to invert and look at things through the prism of a biblical worldview because we are simultaneously of this world and not of this world, simultaneously sinful and righteous. And so to flip the vision or perspective and invert it requires going to battle against your own self many a times in order to position yourself to see things the way that God sees it, in order to assess the thing and be able to handle an attack or an assault or just a blitz of all kind of crazy stuff coming at us to uproot us from a sense of stability and therefore identity and therefore confidence and therefore purpose orientation before God or what we talk about within the realm of social psychology, meaning, meaning, meaning. What, what, what does this all mean, right? Which is the big challenge today. Because where there's no vision, the people what? If they perish, it means that they have not comprehended meaning. Please understand what I'm getting. So for me, I'm always glad to be able to put a portion of my hearing into the well of human dialogue and conversation and listen to them because God is sovereign over them, too. They're saying a lot of things that are true. The world is saying a lot of things that are true. Don't you fool yourself. A lot, because God's sovereign over it all. I told you that Gideon was made by a dream to hear what's going on in the tent of the Midianites and to hear them speaking God's word in their mouth. That's what you and I have to constantly know how to do. We got to be able to hear from God in all those spaces. You have to, because God's giving you warning in the mouth of the wicked many times. He's giving you avenues out. He's giving you timetables. He's giving you chronoses. And we're in a kairos right now. I'll unpack that more fully. But we're in a, a convergence of difficulties and crisis-oriented events that are about to reach a climax. And, and Paul knew that, too. That's why I'm going to get back to the vision here in a moment. I'm just laying a foundation. Notice what else he says here in verse um, 
uh, 20. And again, the Lord knoweth the thoughts of the wise that they are what? So I love that because here is omniscience himself, an all wise God, and he's impeccable at it. We believe that we know that God is light and there is no what in him, no darkness at all. No variable or shadow of turning. What that means is God does not occupy any capacity for making mistakes. So, yeah, when God when you're dealing with a God who's omniscient, what you can know is that God doesn't have lapse time between his perception and reality. His perception and reality are right on top of each other. Ours has plenty of gaps with possible variables shadows of turning and, and, and potential deviations. And by the time we catch up, we got to repent, you know, and that's okay. Cause that's a mechanism from God to keep us moving. I got that wrong. Dang it. All right. Clean it up. Let's keep moving. That's how God deals with us. Clean it up. You, you, you're not perfect. Okay. When, when did you start thinking you were right? So, so he gives us the capacity to deal with that in the gracious principle, as what we have learned, forgiveness of sins. That's, that's what that's about. That's what that's about. It's able to recognize we missed the point and then we can recover. We can recover, right? And get back into harmony with the vision. Now notice what he's going on to say. The, the thoughts of the wise are vain. Thank you, Lord. Now I know that because it's possible that when I listen to the wise, I don't recognize that ultimately their wisdom is vain. It's possible that there can be so many jewels inside the ideas and inside the views and inside the systems and inside the um, the, the the plans of the wicked that I can get drawn in temporarily. Not you. I'm talking about me. This is possible that you can get because there are so many things that are on certain levels true and then they can be wrong at other levels. And so if I don't know how to actually negotiate propositions that may be true on a temporal level, but not true on a deeper spiritual level, then I might buy too much of that product. Does that make some sense? Good, good. Um, especially, and I don't need to want, I don't want to go there right yet because I'm going to be dealing with technology with us because technology is all about vision. Technology is all about the projection of vision, Okay. And I'm going to be building a, a, a paradoxical uh, battle between the technia of the world and the technon of God. OK, because the technia of the world is seeking to to usurp and replace the technon of God. OK, you need to know that that's the whole goal of the devil. I want to be like God. Right. So what we see him constantly doing is engaging in technology and utilizing technology to manipulate human beings into making them think he is the truth. This is why you and our bat- we are battling with the whole system of communication around real things and unreal things. Well, real things and unreal things are frequently a matter of perception. You do have to know that. Right. Like everything that's real is not tangibly and empirically and concretely real to you and me. There are a lot of things that are factually real that you and I only know by faith. Am I helping y'all? Can I just keep my rant going for a minute because I'm trying to wake you up to something? Right. So like when we're not really thinking really deeply and I hear us make statements, I go, ah, Not good. Not good. God alone knows everything. 
We don't. And my refuge is not in how much I know, but who I know. And so within the parameters of my relationship with God, keeping the archetypes clear, they help me remind me of what my mission is in the world, particularly if the systems of the world are the wisdom of the world, uh, you know, causes me to temporarily take an off ramp and make an excursion through Vanity Fair. Some of y'all get that. Right. Does that make some sense? So I didn't make an excursion through Vanity Fair and I'm tripping. I'm literally I'm tripping. You know, it's old school. You young people don't say that, but us old people say I'm on a trip right now. Right. And I got to find another on ramp so I can get back into reality and make sure that my walk is is engaged in the parallelism between the big pictures of God and my calling to correspond to it. Right. Right. Good. I'm glad you got that, because this is why Paul is saying what he said. Now, what he said in chapter three is really what he said in chapter two. And this is what Isaiah has said. And this is what the Psalms has said. God will always take the wise in their craftiness, but he will let them exercise craftiness. You know that that's how the fall occurred. It couldn't have occurred if God didn't mean to take them in their own craftiness by allowing us to be brought into the web of that set of lies. You and I are right now being redeemed out of that initial attack on God through Adam and Eve. We're we're still working, working our way through that, are we not? And this is why Paul uses the metaphor in 2 Corinthians 11. Can you pull it up? Verse 2 and 3, where he's saying, I'm concerned about you, saints, because uh, as Eve Her mind was corrupted, corrupted from the simplicity of the gospel by the devil. I'm worried that it's happening to you. Do you see it? All right. I'm jealous over you with godly jealousy. That's your that's your marriage paradigm. Paul is calling himself a bridegroom. He's not the bride. But what what a partner to have when you have a bridegroom that's your boy, that's just as jealous for your bride as you are. Well, that's because he's the bride, too. Paul's a bridegroom, but he's a bride, too. Like John the Baptist was the bridegroom, but he's the bride, too. And it's cool when you got a boy that's down with you like that, right? Because he's going to check your girl when she gets stupid. Because he wants to be at the altar with you guys, right? Is that good? Does that make some sense? And, and that's what your pastors and elders are supposed to be. They're supposed to be big dogs with the, with the bridegroom and checking the bride to make sure that she doesn't get lost in some kind of psychological, emotional, circumstantial, idolatry of a relationship with anything other than Christ. See what I'm getting at? All right. So this is what he's saying. For I have espoused you to one husband that I may present you as a what? That boy has vision. Does he have vision or what? Stay with me, saints. This is what I'm trying to get at. Does Paul have vision? He is so wrapped up in the vision, he sees himself as part of the presentation ceremony of the bride to Christ. That's huge. That's huge. I don't, you know, I have no idea what this is like. I'm going to have to meditate on that for a while with Paul. But how profoundly important it is when God gives us the vision objectively and he allows us to get drawn into the vision And the vision becomes a living story of which we become participants of. I'm back at the marriage series because you can't help it. Those principles overlap. 
right? The life story and the what? Love story. Did y'all capture that? The life story and the love story. This is what Paul is doing. He's doing a life story practically with the bride because of his love for Christ and Christ's love for for the church, right? So Paul is all inside of what happened here and what's going to happen here. These are your two bookends, okay? These are your two bookends, and Paul is in the middle of that. So I I hope I got your attention. We're going to call this A, and this is A for the Greek word what? Alpha. And we're going to call this B, and this is the B word for, I'm sorry, that's another one. I'm dealing with something else. We're going to call this O for what? Omega. All right. And we can actually turn this into a, uh, a proposition, a proposition, and this is what we would call proto, protology in theology. And you know what protology is, is first things, right? So protology has to do with first things and eschatology has to do with what? Last things. Does that make some sense? So we have the first and then we have the what? The last, right? We have the beginning, do we? And then we have the what? Right. Now, this is important. I want you to get the vision. I'm sorry for being so tacky with it, but I want you to get it. So if Paul is operating with a upstream vision that recognizes how things are patterned by God from the beginning, if he's operating with a protological paradigm, understanding how God has seen it from the beginning, because this is how God sees it. For God, everything is as it was since God conceived it and purposed it, right? The Alpha and the Omega are the same with God. It's the same with God. So Paul is operating out of an upstream revelation while he's functioning downstream in his proxies. This is what we talked about on Tuesday. Did we not, saints? For those of you who don't know, it's kind of wishing I had Bo here for about two hours. I'd have made him do it right. These are two fishermen casting nets. Because Christ has called us to be what? Fishers of men. You guys got that vision? So something is happening here because in Ezekiel 47, we saw water coming out of the what? Out of the temple. I'm going to talk about that here in a moment. Now, remember, ye are the what? Ye are the what? Is that, is that what we just learned by Paul? So something is absolutely astounding happening vision-wise. Because the assertion is, is that the water is coming out of the temple. Okay, that's astounding. Okay, and we're going to look at that in a moment. And this water actually increases as it comes out of the temple and it goes out as a major river into the seas. That's huge. And we already know that the water is a metaphor of a certain aspect of the Trinitarian persons, but it's also a major component to the big word life, period, life. Right. And so the water represents life. And we have these called what? The trees. And that's Ezekiel 47, too. But all of this is found in Revelation, is it not? Chapter 22, which means the way the beginning is, is the way the end is going to be, because the end is no different than the beginning with God. But there is a process in between. In between. This process in between, I talked to you about this before. This is called teleos. Teleos is always purpose. You need to know that. Teleos is always purpose. This is what I'm trying to get at. You and I are supposed to be living on purpose. We're supposed to be living on purpose. Y'all capturing the vision? 
We're supposed to live in on, and, and we're supposed to be living on purpose in relationship to these two brothers that I can multiply by millions and maybe even billions from the beginning of time to the end of time. Would that, would that be agreed upon? If, if we wanted to take these two brothers, and I'm only giving you two because that's the way Paul sets it up in 1 Corinthians 3. I sow, Apollos waters, God gives the what? That's right. So he's just using the two because out of the mouth of what? Two or three witnesses. And, and that's okay. That's John the Baptist. The two witnesses is what the book of Revelation lays down. You and I are part of the two witnesses. Christ sent them out what? Two by two, right? In order to establish the word. So we're never by ourselves. Like Jesus was never by himself. John was never by himself. None of the apostles or prophets were ever by themselves. They always had others bearing record with what they said. If they were not other prophets, it was God himself. That makes sense, right? They were never alone. Jesus says, I'm never alone. Therefore, my word is true. You are saying that my witness is not true because you are saying I'm bearing record of myself. No, my father bears record of me. And, and if you don't believe that, believe my works, because my works are the works that my father is doing in me and through me to bear record that I am the truth. And so this is really important because if we counter that there is an alpha and an omega and we understand in between these two grand archetypes, which are really constituting time and eternity, the beginning and the end. There is a serious process going on in between those two, um, those two uh, what we call archetypal conclusions that we call time. There's time in between here. This is what we call teleos, teleological purpose. So God has a purpose. Whenever God goes in the beginning, that's teleos. Because in the beginning means there is an ending to a process, to a pattern, to a proxies. All right, this is extremely important. Are y'all keeping up with me? It's extremely important. And what I did on purpose was I actually moved the Apostle Paul, according to our text, and uh, uh, Paul, according to our text, and Apollos toward this portion of the narrative of the river flow. We're way up against what appears almost to be the end. Is that true? Because I could have had these guys way back here. I could have put them sort of somewhere in the middle of the teleos. But I put them toward the end of the teleos. I got to justify that vision, don't I? And I am going to justify that vision. I am going to justify that, that vision in a moment. And I think that Paul might agree with me and Apollos too that they understood that they were up against an eschatological climax. I'm almost sure, as the Hebrew writer put it, put it, Jesus came in the ends of the world. And that these men are operating according to a new paradigm that was coming, putting an end to the old and establishing a new. Did that make some sense? And to be able to live in a set of paradoxical tensions between things that have had a beginning and then things that are, that are right up on you historically that are about to move into a climactic conclusion, pushing you into a whole new world order because the apostles lived in a reset is what I shared with you. They lived in a reset. 
the world was going to change because Christ came. And it wasn't going to change in some light, little, simple way. So, so this, is a, this is kind of the body of, of information that I want us to be wrestling with here. Because a lot of times what we do with theology is we actually take theology and we put it on an empty planet. And we be, begin to build these constructs of our theology outside of an atmosphere of struggle. Outside of an atmosphere of conflict and opposition. Outside of an atmosphere of tension and trouble and thalipses and persecution and trials. We like to build our paradigms of what God has promised in our life over on Mars and Pluto and Saturn because ain't nothing going on on those planets. That, that, that feels good, right? To build these concepts of God's goodness in our life and how he's going to build us up and use us and how we're going to do life. And we're never thinking about how to do all that in the midst of something trying to kill us. And yet that is so contrary to your Bible. Because the battle, the battle was the very reason for which the temple paradigm had to come into being. So that we could be saved and preserved throughout this whole teleos. Am I making some sense? Right. And remember, this here is an upward vision. So this is a temple not on the earth. Where is this temple? Right. The flow is from up and behind down to the earth, nurturing the earth within the realm of a teleos going on in our world. Did y'all capture that? Right. In other words, God is good as a father to provide for us. This is why we are in the wilderness study on Sunday to give us water flowing out of the rock. It's flowing out of the rock and the rock does what? It follows us. So y'all seeing the vision now? Are you seeing the vision? Because that's your Bible. All I'm doing is repeating what I've taught this church for like 500 years. And the reason why your Bible gives you these big pictures is to help you navigate your life in a way of staying on the main highway of his purpose for you. Right. Now, God could give us like 20,000 puzzle piece boxes where, you know, you got 20,000 pieces. I'll get those to my grandkids. I ain't going to never, ever sit down and try to put together 20,000 pieces. Not me. I'm way too old for that. Not going to do it. I'll pay them to do it. And, and they'll get it done in a year. They don't have anything to do but learn. Right. I would have to unlearn a whole bunch of stuff to position myself to sit around playing with 20,000 puzzle pieces. But see, that's the difference between us being closer to a reset than back here. Because, see, human history has been more than a 20,000 puzzle piece experience. Humanity has been working with puzzle pieces from the fall. Y'all hearing me? This is why the Hebrew writer said, you know, in, in, in diverse fashions and in many ways, God spoke to the fathers through the prophets. He piecemealed his revelation like puzzle pieces. And it gradually developed a composite that looks like the first coming of Christ and the latter part, the second coming of Christ. Did that come home? Right. So I'm kind of painting a picture. I'm going to get, bring it back down to the ground in a minute. And then I want us to drill into the question. How clear are you on, on the vision and where is your life in relationship to that vision? I think that's that's good application. Right. Would that would that make some sense? Right. And, and especially because of how important the teleos is to you and me. 
How, how important is it for you and I to know that God has provided a river flow for us? And then also trees of life. Because when you go back to Ezekiel chapter 47, verses 7 through 12, and there were many trees on either side of the river. And there were many trees and the trees were for the healing of the nations and for food, which means God promises to provide for us in the midst of this teleological journey. Right. Right. I believe that. I actually do believe that. But what I don't believe is that this is all happening in a vacuum. All of this is happening simultaneously with thunderstorms and conflicts and snakes and dragons and evil entities, demons, and, and fallen human beings, the non-elect, the reprobate uh, forces that would take God's throne. If they could, they would shut the temple shut so the Holy Ghost wouldn't flow. And that's what this whole thing about destroying the temple is all about that I want to make sure that we don't miss out on because if the temple is shut, the water doesn't flow. Did that make some sense? Then again, remember, I told you, we're not just talking about the big optic of the archetype of the temple up in heaven. We're talking about you and I are the right. So if the doors are shut, then the water doesn't flow. Is that John seven thirty seven or what? If any man thirst, let him come unto me. Right. Out of his belly shall flow. Right. So the people of God do, do not get to get away with the inference that God uses his people for the flow. Did that make some sense? I mean, you can try to get away with it all you want to and just enjoy. I'm glad the temple is up there. No, no, no. Paul said the temple is down here too. So river flow has the capacity to take place wherever the temple is. Did that come home? River flow has the capacity to take place wherever the temple is. So you can smile all you want to. But remember, I told you the temple is under attack. I'm just I'm trying to capture the vision because I want us to talk about it before we shut it down. By the way, I don't I think we're going to be off next Friday, too. So you guys get to breathe a little bit and rest. We're coming up on the summer. We're doing all kind of graduations and stuff. And uh, once we get them all cleared out, we'll have a good run up until September. So you'll, you'll just be able to take next Friday off. You can you can pray just. Uh, find a spot on the river somewhere and just drink a bunch of water, eat, eat, some, eat some fruit off the trees, uh, go, go kill a bunch of snakes, whatever you, whatever, whatever fits you, go find some serpents and kill them. All right, here, here, here's what I want us to, here's what I want us to recognize. Go back to our text. And there's another thought here that Paul wants us to consider, and I want to begin to drill down. He says in verse 21, uh, therefore, let no man glory in what? Do you see it? Love it. This is a direct admonition on the part of the uh, friend of the bridegroom, on the part of the bishop of the church. He is the actual founding pastor of the church at Corinth. The rest of them are teachers. That's 2 Corinthians 4. He says, no, nah, y'all teachers. All these other cats coming in, they're teachers. They are not, they are not pateers. This is the Greek term for fathers. I, by the gospel, have begotten you. That's what Paul was able to say. Because he was an apostle, he had the ability to establish churches and God knew the difference, knew the difference that Paul would make at Corinth. And so this is why he would constantly say, even though you guys are jacked up in a thousand different ways, it will not keep me from boasting in the regions of Achaia. Because, you know, we're always a mixed bag. 
There's a lot to rejoice in in any gospel church where we're actually planted by Christ, even though there's a lot of problems in it, too. So Paul is able to be a good father <clears throat> who says, I'm going to always boast in the children of God at Achaia, but I'm coming after all of the devils. <laughs> I'm sorry, that's what he said. I'm on my way. I'm going to draw a sword if I have to. And you're going to find out whether or not I have power. I mean, that's what he said. So that's like daddy said, when I come home, I'm whipping some tail. That's how we used to hear it. It's amazing how we would reform before daddy got home. Anyhow. Here's what he says. Um, Therefore, let no man glory in man for all things are what? All things are yours. Okay, I want to lift that up and throw that at you. This is part of promise to you. This is so important. This is why I was saying earlier, I listen to a lot of different people. I listen to a lot of different disciplines, different worldviews. I listen to a lot of different systems because mankind was created in the Imago day. Contrary to this postmodern fabricating culture of of social constructs as being what they would argue is reality. No, you and I are funneled down to two human beings, male and female in our chromosomal makeup, in our biological makeup, in our neurological makeup, in our spiritual makeup confines us to a very narrow well of wisdom. What that means is everybody is operating out of a set of parameters that God has allowed to occur for us to be able to recognize what people are talking about, even when they are coming from a secular context. The vast majority of secular knowledge across the totality of all disciplines is nothing but theft from God's original well of knowledge. All right, so this is important to know. Because this is getting ready to come. The reason why I say that is because if we acquire the discernment to know how to listen to our enemies, we will pick up on antichrist systems. If we don't, we won't. If we don't know how to hear God's truth taken and fabricated by the perpetual liars, because The devil is a liar and the truth is not in him. He never abode in the truth. So when I listen to the devil, he's going to always take some truth and twist it. Is that not true? Like this is axiomatic. You have to know that because the draw is in the little bit of truth that he tells to hook you by the massive lies that underlie that truth. That makes sense, right? So what you and I have to be capable of doing is be grounded enough to listen through him. Listen through him. Hear the whole matter. Right? And don't talk too quick like you know everything. Because you won't learn if you don't. Like you take the temptation our master went through in the wilderness with the devil. Satan uh, used a lot of scriptural truth. And Jesus didn't waste time demolishing that truth he knew. He simply corrected the interpretation. He didn't waste time saying, you don't get to tell the truth, devil. No, tell the truth, right? But he, he interpreted it more accurately, right? So it's important for you and I to be able to go, oh, that's true, that's true, that's true, that's true. That's a lie. Oh, no, that's a lie. 
Oh, man, that's, that's a lie. I can throw the whole thing away now because the whole half of it's a lie. Did that make some sense? Right. Because what you're doing is recognizing <clears throat> that the truth elements in any of the secular system propositions are setups to capture you by a lie. But it's important for you to go through that exercise because you have to learn discernment. Because actually there are times in which that particular proposition, that setup, that system, that hypothesis, that that worldview has somebody captivated that you know and love. And you have to be ready to be a mediator and go in and dismantle that lie and help deliver that person you love. It can be a son, a daughter, a niece, a nephew, a cousin, and they can be trapped by these lies. And thank God that you were patient enough to hear through that lie. Does that make some sense? Like, child of God, you can't be ignorant on everything. Am I making some sense? Right. This is why we got to know the wiles and we got to know the methods and we got to know the devices. Three words in the New Testament, wiles, methods and devices. When you care about people, this is why in the uh, initial battle of Moses and Pharaoh, what God told Moses is, see that stick in your hand? This is going to be a, a conflict between a false and true serpent, a false and true rod of judgment. So people have to know that Egyptology has a pseudo system of serpent power. That can only be dealt with by the true system of power of the rod of God that's able to swallow up the serpent systems of the world. These are really symbolisms for judgment, okay? That's what they are, symbolisms of judgment. The, the, cobra, vi- uh, the cobra and his, um, his viperous symbolism is a picture of the false god Pharaoh himself. This is why he's hooded. The Pharaohs are hooded. Okay, it's a symbol of his power, his authority and his capacity to exercise judgment. Well, God gives that to all kings. Right. There's authority in the mouth of the king. He he's able to deliver a judgment of life and a judgment of death. The apostles had that. That's my point. Paul says, how do you want me to come with the rod or in love? Right. Because he was ready to deal with the snakes in Corinth. They would have died. I'm telling you. Because he had that authority. He would have taken them right on out. Y'all following what I'm saying? And he knew he had that authority. Like Peter had that authority. We talked about that, didn't we? Ananias and Sapphira had a bad day, didn't they? Right. And so and that's because Peter had a vision of the temple, too. And if you read Revelation chapter 21, verse eight, and then Revelation 21, seven, you don't get to act up. You get cleaned out. And so what I love about this statement here, watch this. Here's the statement. All things are what? Yours. All things are yours. That's the text. I'm not going to let you run away from it. I want you to grasp it. What Paul just said was all things are yours. Right. And what that means is you and I get to actually own this world as children of God to be able to utilize every part of it in order to extract from it what God would have us to extract for the purpose of bringing him glory. Does that make some sense? All right. So and another side, I'm going to flip it on another side and show you another side of it, because I I want the saints at grace to get this, because otherwise we will practice hypocrisy and won't get it. Right. So you notice how most of us 
have grown up and we've been educated and we have taken on different skill sets. Secular, practical, worldly skill sets. Would you agree? And we don't argue and fight about them being worldly and y'all need to not do that. And if you do that, then you don't know God. We don't talk like that. Do we talk like that? Do we talk like we shouldn't learn basic ABCs and phonics and mathematics and algebra and geometry and trig? We don't talk like that, do we? We don't talk like that when it's talking about learning science and biology and, and all these other differences. We don't talk like that, do we? Why? Because we understand that these are what we call the stoike, the rudiments of education in this secular system. And it ultimately maps itself out into a kind of career we take off in, whether a mechanic, whether an engineer, whether a plumber, whether a doctor, whether a therapist, whether a nurse, the, the plethora of it. Does that make some sense? And all of that is cultivating this world. All of that is cultivating this world. Keeping up with me, ladies and gentlemen. All of that's cultivating this world. <clears throat> and the believer, therefore, is in this world though not of it. Did that make some sense? You spend a good portion of your time learning secular wisdom in order to employ yourself for economic gainfulness. And it plays a role in the development of your character and your your, uh, personality trait. This is why I gave you guys uh, Maslow's uh, uh, rules for... for, Hierarchy of, uh, of, of what? Needs, right. Because on a human physical level, we have needs. And ours are exactly the same as everybody else on the planet. So don't act like you're an angel. I mean, you are, but you're not just an angel. You got to eat like everybody else does. So this is why Jesus said, don't root up the wheat with the tares, because y'all both are going to grow together. And you got to learn how to engage the tares. Because engaging the tears will help you determine whether you are one or not. Did that make some sense? Sure. Sure. This, this part will humble you because Christians love to pretend we're something we're not. And then when we buy into a false sort of categorization of who we think we are, we're actually militating against part of God's plan. Temples are meant to be in the midst of sinners. Did that come home? They're meant to be in the midst of sinners. How else is the sinner going to have an option at the point of epiphany to run to the temple for refuge? One of the first things a temple is, is a hiding place for fugitives. But see, you're not a fugitive. You never had to run in your life. You're not a sinner. You've always been saved. You're good to go. You don't know anything about running to Jesus as your high tower from the wrath of God. See what I'm getting at? Right. And look how good God is to take you as a temple and to place you in the midst of all kinds of variable needs of people who may just wake up one day and realize, you know what? I need to go to temple. I need to go to temple. And the next thing you know, they're asking you a question. That's what it means to go to temple. Is that right? I need to go to temple. So God knows how to actually put temples in the midst of secular wildernesses, spiritual wildernesses. And people walk past those temples every day. 
until the day <clears throat> they need God. And then they go, you know, I think I'm going to go to temple. Is that beautiful or what? Right, because that's the mystery of how it happens when you and I are simply operating according to vision and doing what we're called to do. And remember, you're not just doing it as God working in you and through you. If it's happening and the next thing you know, you're sowing or you're watering and God's giving the what? That's exactly right. Y'all get the picture now? Right. Even in the midst of trouble. This is the part I like about what Paul is saying. When he says all things are yours, he's opening you up to become wise enough to know how to learn broadly and discern sharply. Learn broadly and discern sharply. Did that make some sense? This is why Moses was said in Hebrews chapter 11 to have been learned in all the wisdom of Egypt. Is that what it says? Of course it does. Read it for yourself. God allowed Moses to go 40 years in his education in the most educated nation in the world at that time. And that was by divine providence because he was designated to be killed right along with all of the men, which is where we are again today. And God hid him and by divine sovereignty moved him up into the palace of the king and to be protected by the daughter of the king and his own mother able to nurse him. God put all that together. Can God do that? And then allow Moses to be educated in the greatest system of the world. And then opened his eyes to his true inheritance and ran him out of there so he could, he could reconstruct him in preparation to come deliver God's people. But don't think that Moses didn't know what was going on in, in Egypt. He did. And you and I must know what's going on in Egypt. Does that make some sense? Of course, of course, of course. And, and this, this also can have an allusion to, to the birth of our Savior. He hung out in Egypt for a few years. There was something symbolic about that. And what I mean by symbolic, it has a richer, deeper, more spiritual significance relative to God's people in Egypt being touched by the Savior and being brought into the kingdom of God. Does that make some sense? We actually know that. We actually know the gospel went down there in the baby Jesus and then it went back down in there at the outpouring of the third person under Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. We know that. We know the gospel went back to Africa and established itself as the first grand gospel community. We already know all that. So we're making full circle with Moses and Joseph, aren't we? And, I, and what I'm arguing for is having an understanding that all things are ours for the gospel's sake. So now this is going to be helpful for young people. I want to make sure I drill this down into young people for a moment, because as when we get older, like we are, a lot of us are just, you know, we're like old um, horses that know our way back to the barn. <laughs> and the closer we get back uh, home from a ride to the market with our master, we get the gallop in a whole lot faster. We just going to we want to run up in that barn, shut that barn and eat our hay and go to sleep. Well, I get that with old people. Young people don't think like that. Young people ready to go explore the world. Would you agree? Young people are ready to go explore the world. And rightly so, because intuitively there are things there for them to learn. Right. And especially if they're gods. 
God is going to use lawyers. He's going to use doctors. He's going to use scientists. He's going to use engineers. He's going to use mechanics. He's going to use politicians. Yes, even politicians. Now, the worst things than politicians, they're called preachers. He's going to use lawyers, okay? But God is going to use all these kind of people, and he's going to have his elect in those places. And they're going to be temples for the fugitives that come. And they're going to be operating according to vision. You ever meet somebody who is in one of those extremely, I would consider extremely complicated uh, governmental systems like in the DOD, Department of Defense, and they're a believer. What a strange paradoxical calling. But let me help you. There are believers in the DOD. And the only reason you're hesitating is because you're not able to hold the paradoxes I'm teaching you. Think about it. The DOD is first century stuff with John the Baptist. Many of the soldiers came to John the Baptist during the baptisms that John was doing. And they were asking, hey, we believe the gospel. How should we live now? He's a CIA, DOD, military folks in government asking John the Baptist, how do you live? And John was saying, just don't rip people off and don't do violence. Boy, our country would be different if just those two admonitions were held to, right? Don't rip people off and don't do violence. Most of us would be doing fine if that was the case. But my point is, ladies and gentlemen, what we have a tendency to do if we're not careful in how to embrace all things are yours is create faulty categories and cut off our blessings. And in creating those faulty bifurcations, you actually set yourself up to be a hypocrite. Did that make some sense? And and I see it happening with us a lot. And I go, ah, we're just being lazy. So forgive me for pressing you because my time is almost up. I mean, you know, I don't know how many more years God has me teaching. But what I don't want to do is I don't want to finish by being lazy in, in, in particularly in the time in which we live right now. We live in a time where Christians cannot be slow. You cannot be slow. You cannot be dumb. You cannot be naive. You have to be sharp. You have to be discerning. You don't have to be intellectual. I ain't talking about that. Some of us may be that. That's okay. Like, like again, we, we got, we've got true believers in the administration of even the Biden administration. They got to walk around holding their nose, but they're in there. And we had them with, 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 with Trump. And we had them with Bush. And all the clowns. How do we know? Because God has always had his people in the highest levels of authority all through the scripture. Help me, saints. Help me. And so what I don't want you to do is paint a faulty vision of what's going on out there just because we're too lazy to think it through. I'm making some sense, right? And, and you know, like every year we get to help these little babies here graduate. And I'm always excited about it because they got a small group that goes here. This is a school of the arts, you know, and this is a this here is not, this is not one of these Ivy League middle, uh, high schools, to say the least. It's your uh, continuation school. So um, the kids got a lot of problems. They just do. But they're our kids. They're our kids. Okay? They may not be yours, but they're mine. And in and, and many years, several of the kids that are in that group, their parents go to our church. So this is why I call them mine. Like, so I'm not separating them from our kids because some of my kids went to continuation school and now they're at the top colleges in California. So it doesn't matter how you start. 
It only matters how you finish. Does that make some sense? So I love on these kids. They're all crazy and goofy and weird and wild and they look like they're getting ready to transform. But our battle is to get them before they transform for real. Right? Because they're part of the next generation. So it's important to know why integration is, is uh, a non-negotiable for the people of God. You and I are seed cast into the field of the world. We got to be there. Plus, what if, what if, I'm going to stick this out there. Now, old people are not going to like this. Young people don't care. But old people are not going to like this. What if God means for us to be around another hundred years before Christ comes? See, see what you see, what you see. Old people, old people, old people, old people. See what I'm getting at? Old people. Um, and, 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 young, and young people are going, so, I mean, this is life, you know. I want to live my life. I want to do 50, 60, 70 years, PJ. Uh, I got grandkids. I keep telling you, I live in the tension. Because I got grandkids that are just on the brink of getting ready to go to high school and get ready for the world. And we're trying to negotiate them in ways to help them see this world and and find their place in it until Christ calls us out. So I don't get to tell them to check out. That's not fair. Then I'm presuming upon the vision. Right. See, so my job in the vision is to correspond with Paul and Apollos. Did that make some sense? I have to be participating in casting the net. Did that make some sense? Right. So I'm going to I'm going to grapple with this a little bit more and then we're going to go into some Q&A. Here is my my great optimism. I'm going to use the OP optimism. And this is really rooted in faith because I told you faith is optimistic hope. Right. What Paul is doing here in Apollos, and that would be all the people that were working in that first century, is they're snatching up fish out of the sea. And those fish, according to Matthew 13, are new believers. The kingdom of God is like a dragnet that's cast into the sea. And when it comes to shore, that's the eschaton. The master separates the good from the bad, right? That's Matthew 13. Right. Well, I want you to think about what Paul and Apollos are doing. They're preparing for the new world order that will last another 2,000 years from where they are. Did that come home? This eschatology is not the total end. It's just the end of the old age. Did that make some sense? Right. But I can tell you there were Christians at this time who were looking for Jesus to come back so they wouldn't have to work. Of course. Of course. That's first Timothy chapter four and then second Timothy as well. Teaching that the resurrection has already passed. Overthrowing the faith of some. Denying the the, uh, assertion that Jesus will ultimately come back and bring a final conclusio to this world in a dramatic way of of total glorification and judgment and restoration, right? Which is the hope of the believer. Well, from here, if if, if you and I can, if you can bear with my, my writing from here, if we're dealing here with like 33 AD, which is the cross, to 70 AD, 
which is some 37 years later, right? Where Paul and them are preaching almost every one of your epistles from Romans all the way up to first uh, and second and third John are written between AD 35, 37 to AD 67, 68, 69, with the exceptional question of the apocalypse. Did that make some sense? So stay with me on that. I want to do a little bit of a bibliology, which you just attached so you can help know your Bible better. So your Old Testament, which consists of how many books? Say it like you know it. There you go. 39. Say it like you know it and learn it. Learn it because you need to be, if you're going to be a Bible believing person, you got to be able to tell people the, at least the composition of your book numerically. 39 oh, how many new? There you go. How many in total? 66. Right. So the Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi brings us up to 400, 500 years before Jesus. When Jesus shows up, we start with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and close out with the apocalypse, right? So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are written after Jesus rises again from the dead, AD 33. So anywhere from AD 33 to AD 38, 39, AD 40 is the gospel starting to be written. But the epistles are already starting to be written, too, because the book of Acts is showing us that. Right. Paul's already writing. Peter's already writing. By the time we get to 8050, 8060, 8065, most of the New Testament is written. OK, but we haven't come to the great climax of Matthew 24 yet, because Jesus says, you know, look at all these buildings going back to the physical temple of Israel. That's what we're getting ready to work through. He says, look at that temple, because that temple is what? Coming down. He said that temple is coming down. Because see, the disciples were enamored by that temple. That was never the temple that Paul was talking about, Jesus, or any of the New Testament writers. You guys keeping up with me? So I'm going to do just a little theology on that to help you. There are two Greek terms that constitute the temple in the New Testament. Hydron is the first. H-I-E-R-O-N, Hydron. Matthew 24, 1, please. And that has to do with the temple largely. The outer court of the temple with the gates and the place where the Gentiles and the Jews and women, common people get to come in and hang out. So, so the temple was like a big old bazaar. OK, it was like a uh, like what we would have today, a marketplace. And it was inside the temple was what was called the holy place. And it was barred off from the people. The people could see the holy place, but men, women and Gentiles couldn't go into that holy place. Only the priest could and the high priest. Did that make some sense? Right. So the common people could come in and look at the iconography. Because the iconography is gospel. The pillars with their names written on them and the altar of incense and the burnt offering, a burnt altar for sacrifice and the labor for washing and the manure and the candlestick. And then the veil of the temple going into the Holy of Holies in the inside of which was ostensibly the Ark of the Covenant where God dwelt on his throne. When you go inside the temple, then you get to be taught by all of the pictograms. So the moment you go inside that arena, you're under gospel education. Am I making some sense? With your visuals, with your audios. See, remember I told you much of the gospel from the days in which God started teaching men about who he was as Jehovah was all by hearing. In tradition, people weren't writing. Faith came by hearing. 
So men and women learn how to hear well because your vision comes from hearing. So you and I are using a third mechanism, a third mediation, which I love, and that is our Bible. Our Bible is a medium between you and me, right? Is it not? So God is the revelator. We agree with that. He gives us vision. But God is using me. I am an instrumental means of that vision right now. The other instrumental means is the word of God. It is a primary instrumental means. I am a secondary instrumental means. But I'm very important to it because I'm occupied by the paraclete to explain the text. God means for that to happen. You're not going to get the text on your own. You don't get the text on your own. How can I understand except someone guide me? Is that right? All right. So this is a joy we get to have because this becomes a replication process. You get to leave, take this revelation, add to your own study and then be ready to be a temple placed somewhere for someone to get water from you. That's how this works. And so in this situation, what we're dealing with here uh, in Matthew chapter 24, one, I want to share with you the term that is not meant by what Paul is saying. Matthew 24, 1. And Jesus went out and departed from the what? We call this the temple proper. It's the bigger, larger temple arena where everybody gets to come by and sell and and talk and engage and have fellowship and whatever. Just visual. Like I've been to the Vatican. You guys been to the Vatican. Have a few people that have been to that demonic place. Right. Right. I mean, it's, it's you know, there's a lot to learn there. I'm going to use the Vatican. I'm going to use the Vatican. So if you ever go to the Vatican, you will know what I mean by all things are yours. See, and, 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 and now for some of my brothers and sisters who've gone to the Vatican, guess what they get to do? Overcome the cynicism. Because there was a lot there for you to have learned. A lot. Right? Because what the Vatican shows you, if you know how to open your ears, is how the world was absorbed into the church and the church into the world when the church became part of the political power to subsume the world under it. And all of the artifacts are there from almost all of your pagan religions. And you get to walk through all of these chambers and see all of these pagan Greek mythical gods and, and then the Hebrew uh, uh, genealogy and, and, and the, the, the uh, pre-Christian era and the pre-Hebrew era. And you get to see all of these icons and obelisks and all that stuff, don't you? They're all symbolic of how the church played a role in bringing these systems near to the gospel even though itself collapsed into it as well. But you could see that. We could see the world in the Vatican. A picture is as a thousand words. So by the time you walk through the Vatican and come out on the other side, you are way more knowledgeable than you know. If you could take it and integrate it in the particular areas of maybe your calling and experience in life where you could share those things. Like, I don't know why I'm going here, but I'm going to go here because I just think y'all will get a get a kick out of this. Transgenderism was seen in the iconography of the Vatican. We already saw them playing around with the hermaphrodites and the multiple sexual genders stuck in time in the crafting of the different idols. 
and they had their philosophies encased in it. That we are going to be transcending male and female and going into the indistinguishable dimensions of what we would call uh, neuter gendered societies. All that's old. And you would have seen that if you had taken your walk carefully and have been able to read 1 Corinthians 3 and say, thank you, Lord, all things are ours. Am I making some sense? And then when we are where we are now in real time, as, as we see it, dealing with it in our own life in a kind of real serious battle of cultures, we don't have to be so pushed back as if this is a new thing, nothing new under the sun. That which has been, been is and that which is, that too has already been. So the enemy is always just repackaging old paradigms in order to throw us off of our feet. But see, had you walked through the Vatican, you would have caught that in the teleos of the Vatican. And the way the Vatican was set up is to show you the beginning of time, because it starts with an Adam-Eve sort of motif, and it shows you the end of time. Because once you get in the center of the Vatican, you got Michelangelo's whole Sistine Chapel up there before you walk out. And if you understand the prophecy, you understand that there is an attempt for man to become God. Am I teaching? Right. I saw it. I said, oh, here we go. It's all right here. The Vatican laid out for us the battle lines and, and we could and many of us could see a lot of the Mason stuff. We could see the Illuminati stuff. We saw all of the iconography leading to all of the mystery religions. The stuff that your media tells you is all conspiracy. Well, yeah, spend a couple thousand dollars and walk through the Vatican. Tell me if it's conspiracy when you get there. And then you get to go down there and hang out with Peter and look at his bones and the different priests that died, the different uh, 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 popes that have died and encased down there with all of the different keys because they're viewed as, 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 as gods. You get to look at all of this going on and you learn a whole lot more about what your Bible says is Mystery Babylon, the mother of harlots. Did that make some sense? Right. It's, it's worth it to go and learn because now you can do this in the metaverse, you can go online and learn now. You can, you, you know, they can, they can walk you through the whole thing now and you can still learn, but you got to ask God to give you wisdom so you can see it for what it is yeah. and, and, and know that this is the matrix that God has us in. Okay, this is the matrix. So this verse here, it's dealing with the physical temple. <clears throat> the next verse that I want you to see um, in relationship to, to this t- uh, temple project will be over in Matthew chapter four, verse five. Nope, Matthew chapter 23, start with me in Matthew 23, verse 17. I'll see if I can pull that up. Matthew 23, 17. Ye fools and blind, for whether it's greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold. Jesus is still using hieron. He's not using the term uh, neon that has to do with the holy of holies. Everywhere you read in the New Testament of the temple proper is dealing with political and social activity going on in it. This here is dealing with banking inside the temple. Did you see that? Notice, ye fools and blind, for whether is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold. Right, so you got, you got the temple, but now you got gold. So you understand that gold was a standard for our economics in the Western culture for many, 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 many uh, uh, centuries now. Right, this, this has everything to do with economics and business. 
This is why they sold Jesus out. This is why Judas Iscariot sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. So gold and silver has to do with economics. We know that. That's Revelation 18. So understand that even with our economic instabilities that's taking place right now, all of this is operating at a spiritual level. Okay, it's important for you to know that. But this is the Heron Temple. It's not the temple that, that uh, Christ is dealing with. Look, at, look with me at Matthew chapter 4, verse 5. Matthew 4, 5. It will give you another text. Then the devil taketh him. Who is the him? Jesus. Up into the what? What's the holy city in that context? Jerusalem. Now watch this. And setteth him on a what of the temple? This is still the external temple. You guys got that? I'm getting ready to teach you something. I need you to just hold on. Hold on. Hold on, okay? Hold on. What I'm teaching you is the external temple will be preoccupied with every kind of devil from hell. The external temple will, the devil can go to the temple. Where he could not go was to the Holy of Holies. I'm just giving you the key right now, and I'm going to show you what I mean, okay? He could deal with the outer court because the outer court is where common folks are who haven't been initiated into the priesthood and therefore sanctified and consecrated. Right. People who are initiated into the priesthood and sanctified and consecrated have a greater privilege. Did that make some sense? Right. By typology, by by pattern. So I want to I want to move forward because this here is remarkable. He's taking Jesus to the temple. Jesus is engaging him in an excursion around a level of territorial right the devil has. In other words, Jesus is not saying, devil, I don't want to go with you. He has to because he's doing it for my sake. Because I actually have to know that the devil will come as close as the outer court as he possibly has a right to. And he will only get into the inner court. This is where I'm getting ready to go. If I let him. Did you hear what I just did? The naos. So the naos is the holy of holies. Wherever that phraseology is used, it is speaking of the highest concept of intimacy and fellowship between God and the high priest. That's the holy of holies. That's the naos. 47 times is that phrase used, that concept used, and I want us to see a few verses. The first time that the naos is used in any significant way um, is in uh, Matthew chapter 27, verse 5. Look at Matthew 27, 5. I'm going to walk us through this. Now, this is Judas Iscariot. Now, the temple has been completely abandoned by God because God gave uh, the um, high priest and the Sanhedrin up to Satan to kill Jesus. This is the crucifixion of Christ. That means the temple is completely inhabited by demons, okay? So now verse 25, verse 5 of chapter 27 is describing Judas Iscariot reluctantly taking and putting the money back in the temple after having sold Jesus out. But it's too late because the gospel tells us that same night Satan entered into Judas, right? John chapter 13. Now Judas was ostensibly a temple, wasn't he? Am I making some sense? But he opened himself up 
in his holy of holies, which is his heart. And Satan entered in. We're going there. That's what I'm trying to help you guys with. I want you to keep up with me. I'm trying to help you see something because this is not a play thing ultimately. So he goes and and throws the money away because his conscience is in conflict. He just sold the son of God out and he was an apostle. That's a problem. Now Psalm 109 is being fulfilled. Our our judgment psalm that we taught many, many uh, months ago concerning cursing the wicked and and damning the wicked. That's an execration psalm of, of judgment upon Judas and his household. Let his family be desolate. Let, let his bishopric be, be given to another. Let him bear the curse. You guys remember that language when I talked about holy anger? Yeah, Judas Iscariot is under that judgment now because he sold Christ out. So, and this is, this here is a, a quick caveat I'll put there. When you reject Christ as your high, high priest, you have no way of barring Satan from your, the throne of your heart. Did that make some sense? Right, because Jesus is the high priest who represents us in the Holy of Holies. If Jesus is my high priest representing me in the Holy of Holies, Satan can never possess me. Let it come home. So what's taking place in heaven is going to take place on earth. If in heaven I have a great high priest, then on this earth, in my body, I have him who is a representative of him called the Holy Ghost, who also intercedes and keeps me from falling to present me spotless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. Did that make some sense? Y'all keeping up with me? Right. This is really important to capture because see what I'm doing now with the optic? I'm bringing it close to home. I'm talking about the temple of our body now, am I not? Right, because the way the Old Testament closes out, the Old Testament is Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The way the Old Testament closes out is the snake makes his way all the way up to the temple. And if he could, he would have had Jesus, who is the high priest, who goes into the Holy of Holies in him alone. Am I making some sense? Right. It's important to kind of capture this. But Jesus had vision, didn't he? So he knew better. I mean, the way he handled the snake in the desert, he had no he had no he had no chance when Jesus said, you know, father, into to, to your into your hands, do I commit my spirit? There's no way that the devil could have actually captured the holy of holies, even though he was able to destroy the body. That's John chapter two, 19, John two, 19, because. John 2.19 is using naos now in the deeper, more intimate sense. Remember what Jesus says? Destroy this temple and I'll raise it up again in three days. So now this is important for you to get. So remember, we are either in the building of the temple or the tearing it down. And I told you that because we are called the temple of the living God, we are the targets of battle too. You do have to know that. So what Jesus says, he answered, destroy this temple and in three days I'll raise it up. And believe me, this was the argument that the rulers had when they were crucifying Christ. And they mistook what he was saying as to destroying the physical temple. Remember that. And so this is really interesting. So here's the way your theology flows out. When we get into the naos, or the Holy of Holies, that language is from the time of Jesus' ascent, uh, resurrection and ascension. The Holy of Holies is exclusively 
the true believer who can never, ever be penetrated by Satan, even though you and I are warned about it. For instance, the holy of holies or the naos is 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17. You are the temple of the living God. If anyone seeks to destroy the temple, God's going to destroy him. That means God's warrior angels. Once again, we're at the hierarchy of angels. The warrior angels are dispatched to stop the believer from being destroyed by the enemy. Does that make some sense? Y'all keeping up with me? Right. It's important for you to get. So that's exactly what that text is saying. And every reference in the New Testament going up even into the apocalypse underscores this in uh, Revelation chapter uh, chapter 11 as well. Verse one is going to give you one reference of the external temple. I love this. And there was given me a reed like unto a rod. This is John. And the angel stood saying, rise and measure the what? Right now, this word temple is going back to the word hieron. That's the external temple, the physical temple with the gates and the pillars where everybody's coming in and doing. That's the place where Jesus went and whipped them and took cords and cleaned up house. That's the external temple. What is happening there? That temple is being judged. God is judging that temple. So the angel is telling John to measure that temple. Look at the next verse. But the court, which is without the temple, leave out. Do you see it? And measure it not, for it is given unto the Gentiles and the holy city shall they tread underfoot for 42 months. So here's the vision that you get. You get the external temple being destroyed by the Gentiles. And the only thing standing is the holy of holies. Now we move into a second vision of that same vision and it transitions from the Holy of Holy being protected by that measuring line and the external temple being destroyed to two witnesses. Those two witnesses are, is that Holy of Holies. Look at the next verse, verse three. And I will give power unto my what? Well, isn't the temple the witness of God? Isn't the temple where the witness is? Isn't the covenant, the Ark of the Covenant, the witness? Of course it is. It's called the Tabernacle of Witness. Now, the Tabernacle of Witness is Christ. The Tabernacle of Witness are all true believers. The two witnesses are believers who prophesy out of the Tabernacle of Witness. Did that come home? Right. So this is what's going on. I will give power unto my two witnesses. And isn't that what Jesus said in Acts chapter one, verse eight through 11? Tarry here until you be endued with power from on high. So shall you be my what? Y'all keeping up with me, right? Because I'm sharing you with you what your Bible already says. And the easily to retain this vision for yourself, just simply think of Jesus. Who is the living temple? That's what he said. And then think of yourself in Jesus. That makes it easy. If Jesus is the physical living temple and I'm in Jesus, I am a physical living temple. If Jesus is attacked by Satan, I'll be attacked by Satan. If Jesus is able to overcome Satan, I'm able to overcome Satan because as my high priest is, so am I in him. Does that make some sense? But there will be an attack on the temple. This is what the two witnesses are dealing with. So they're prophesying and preaching 
uh, 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 2003 score days in sackcloth and ashes. That's three and a half years, 42 months, sackcloth and ashes, meaning they are in a world that is a mess. They're not wearing white robes. They're not running around dancing and shouting, hallelujah, we got the victory. They're fighting a battle and they're letting the world know it's under the judgment of God. When you wear sackcloth and ashes, you are saying this world is collapsing. Babylon, Babylon is falling. Am I making some sense? Y'all keeping up with me? All right. So this is really important because remember, if you and I have vision, if we have vision, it means that we see things the way God sees it. And do you think God is pleased with the way the world is right now? Right. So for us to be able, and this is Matthew 11, I won't go there, but Jesus said him and John, and John and Jesus are the two witnesses here and us and him. He says, John, when John came, John came warning you with threats and judgments. He came singing to you, telling you, you need to mourn. Why? Because the ax is laid to the trees. The judgment is coming. I come, Jesus saying, I'm the bridegroom. I'm here. I'm telling you to rejoice. And you guys are mourning. In other words, the world operates in a direct antithesis to the merits and the imperatives of God. So like if God tells us to mourn, the world will dance. If God tells us to rejoice, the world will mourn. And the reason is because the world is operating under a satanic system in opposition to God. It will not rejoice in the things of God. It does not delight in God's law. It hates God. And we have to know when God is giving the world over that it's a dark period of time. And in order to represent God, we have to have the right tone. Does that make some sense? That's Matthew 11, by the way, again. So Jesus came for three and a half years. John preached for three and a half years. And John's message was never really good. It was always repent. I love just said, John, John said, look, I have a right to work in the temple, but nah, I'm not working there because the temple is corrupt. Y'all can meet me down at the Jordan. That's what he was saying to everybody. You meet me at the Jordan and you can call me crazy for eating wild honey and, and locusts and crickets and all that. And you, you may not like the way I dress, but there's a parable in the way I'm dressing because it was speaking to the uncleanness of the Jewish people and the wrath of God on them. Again, remember, we are temples and therefore iconography is a big part of what we emit. Dress code means everything. And people are saying John was weird and crazy, but the Holy Ghost was drawing a whole lot of people to John because they could actually pick up on the judgment coming. And how joyful was it to hear John's preaching down at that dirty, filthy river called Jordan. And just one day, John says, I told you, behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. And those people are now coming up out of the water following Jesus. This is James and John and many of them. They were former disciples of John who followed Jesus. What a great transition point because they're now moving out of the old into the new in the person of Christ, who is the new covenant, still operating under that old covenant paradigm. So they were learning how to live New Testament theology in an Old Testament context. Am I making some sense? All right. See, I should stop now. I'm going to take this into a few more minutes and help you get it. So the disciples do something for me that I want you to get. It was hard on them because Jesus had them operating out of New Testament principles when the Old Testament had not been formally or legally put to an end yet. 
It was hard on them. Jesus is going hanging out with publicans and sinners and partying with, 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 with whoremongers and, and, and tax collectors. He's partying with them now, not doing what they do, but being among them in order to be the light of the world. And they're loving it. Because they couldn't go to temple. And synagogue was dead. So the temple was a moving temple that went to them. That river flow was taking place wherever Jesus went. Remember what he says? Tax collectors and publicans and harlots are coming into the kingdom of God and you are not. You guys remember that? Right. This is Christ. This is, and see what Christ was doing was giving the disciples a foreshadow of what they would be doing. This is why it was so hard for them because they were used to legalism, self-righteousness, pharisaical separation, uh, separationalism. I'm holy. I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to do that. Well, okay. if somebody doesn't go, how is the water going to flow if somebody doesn't go and plant themselves in those communities until somebody's thirsty? Y'all keeping up with me? No, you're not. See, and this is called evangelism. This is called the evangelical euangelion. This is the evangel. Jesus said, go. It took the disciples a long time to go. They really didn't go until the eighth chapter of Acts. Peter, James, and John love staying around the temple. They got a little work done, but it didn't get busted open into the Gentile world until Paul and Barnabas and Silas and Timothy. Paul had to, God had to take Paul and raise him up and say, okay, you fellas, y'all can be the ministers to the circumcision. Well, I'll send Paul to these crazy folks. And what Paul figured out was in order for him to actually do the Gentiles, he had to become all things. Are y'all listening to me? This is what I meant by all things are yours. Paul understood the uh, flexibility and the diversity of perspective that you got to have with the gospel in order for the gospel to map on to those crazy, crazy cultures that formerly were off limits for a Jewish brother. This is what I meant by the flexibility of the gospel. Now you tell me what was driving Paul to overcome his natural intuition to want to stay clean. He was a Pharisee of the highest order. What was driving that man to decide to go into Gentile territory? The love of God. Him recognizing he was a temple. Him recognizing he's carrying that heavenly vision in himself. Into a water flow of human history where all kind of fish are passing by. Am I telling you the truth? Casting his net everywhere he went. Casting his net everywhere he went. And was that brother getting droughts? Was he getting droughts? That brother was getting droughts and establishing local trees everywhere. Every congregation is a local tree. He's establishing local trees and then comes the eschaton, the destruction of the Roman Empire in AD 70. The whole political system is crashing. People don't know what to do, fit to be tied. But there's a church here and a church there and a church here and a church there with a grander heavenly vision, helping men and women understand reality according to God in a system that was crumbling. Does that make some sense? This is important. 
This is where I'm going to stop and we can pick the mic up for a few minutes. So, not, thank you, but not, we're going to come back again one more time because what's going on in my world is we haven't hit the darkness yet. We haven't hit the darkness. We're about to hit it. Second Thessalonians chapter two, verse two and three and four. I'm just going to give you this and we're going to talk a little bit. Can we talk? Yes. Okay, because you can go home no. or, we can, or we can talk and we can and we can try to figure out what's getting ready to happen. Like most people don't want to hear it and I, I'm not even ready to talk about it. Uh, and, and I'm not playing with you because I'm, I'm thinking, you know, when it when it comes down, it'll be so clear. And, and people will just have to deal with where they are. All right. Listen to what this text says. Be not soon shaken in mind or troubled, neither by spirit, nor by word, nor by letter. As from us as that the day of Christ is at hand. The lie that the day of Christ was at hand is what Paul is telling the church at Thessalonica Thessalonica not to be worried about. It didn't come. Jesus didn't come secretly in the night and rapture a bunch of people out here. That's a big lie. The rapture is not secret. Did y'all get that? Ain't nothing secret about lightning flashing from one end of the world to the other. That's a whole nother story. Listen, you can be dead sleep when the lightning flash. You're going to wake up. Oh, there go Jesus. Time to go. He ain't leaving nobody behind. Did you hear that? And I'm just going to set that there because I could, I could unpack it. But you can go to sleep all you want to. The only sleep I don't want you to be doing is spiritual sleep. Because that's the parable of the ten virgins, five wise, five foolish. And the way you go to sleep is to avoid sound doctrine. You will go to sleep if you're not taught well. Am I making sense? You will go to sleep if you're not taught well. If your pastors are not prophetic, if they don't know how to unpack the word, if they don't know how to map it onto where we are, you cannot but go to sleep. How do you go to any kind of religious community week in and week out, month in and month out, year in and year out, and don't have that word speaking vitally to where we are in our culture? You're going to go to sleep. Because the goal of the enemy is to sprinkle that, that stardust in your eye and tell you everything's all right. Until you're in captivity. Right. But the the prophetic word, the temple is going to always let you know what God is up to. And then we got to then we got to negotiate as a family on how to work that out. Did that make some sense? You got to negotiate as a family. This is this is what was so. okay. so if you don't believe me, just understand when Jesus said, tarry ye here until the Holy Ghost comes, 120 in the upper room. They didn't quite understand the change that was coming. But they were obedient enough to wait on God as a community until they were empowered to deal with being a witness in a world where the culture was going to kill you for Jesus sake. Did that come home now? See what I'm saying? 120 obeyed him. They said, we just waiting on we waiting on the third person. Jesus said he coming. We're waiting on him because that third person is going to make it where the temple is secure. The temple is secure by the third person. Where the third person is not there, the temple can be invaded by dark spirits. Listen to the text. Verse three. Let no man what? That's what Jesus has been teaching us forever. I don't know why people don't get that. 
the vast majority of our world system are a bunch of liars. I don't know why people don't get Jesus. Paul trying to tell you the whole thing is the enemy is going to lie to you. He's going to use models that are spurious and false and draw you in by assertions that appear to be good, but they don't correspond with scripture. Here it is. Let no man deceive you by any means for that day shall not come except there first come a what? And, and this is what makes where you and I are right now very important because the precursor to the full manifestation of the Antichrist system is the church becoming completely useless for the kingdom of God. The apostasy of the church. The precursor to the Antichrist emerging in full-fledged um, manifestation is when there is no restraint system keeping him compressed. Faithful preaching and teaching and faithful witnessing by men and women who have the occupancy of the spirit in them is what suppresses him. Remember what I said earlier to you? There are believers in all stations of life. Right. And God does it on purpose in order to restrain evil. But when those believers are removed, then there's no restraint on the system. And what you and I are seeing today is a diminishing of efficacy on the part of the church impacting our culture around the things that are emerging as a global conglomerate. You are not hearing a prophetic word. You're not hearing a unified voice in the church. And you could hear from the church in this day better than you could ever hear any time in human history. We could hear a man or a woman or a group anywhere on the planet, all around the world at the same time, if they were really in tune with God. Did that make some sense? We could easily all have the revelation. We could easily all have the revelation. But you're not hearing. You're hearing a bunch of goons. I promise you, if you're listening to nuts out there, you need to be very careful because nuts are in it for money and for manipulation. I'm talking about all these cons that will tell you they know what God is up to. <laughs> if you ever find one of these cons on the Internet, just do some research on them and see what, where, where they came from five years ago or 10 years ago. Because they're really rehashes of old systems that they sold and, and people bought and it never happened. And here they come with another prophecy. Am I making some sense? Bunch of con- bunch of cons. Bunch of cons. Now, they can they can mess with your head if you're given to the lust of knowledge. Ooh, man, Pastor, have you heard this dude? Man, he's deep. I said, yeah, just deep as Satan. <laughs> like, that's deep. They're deep enough to run you into these esoteric labyrinths and keep you distracted. Does that make some sense? And you drugs so far out there, you don't know you'd have been wrapped up in in in, in Gnosticism, docetism. You'd have been knocked, uh, locked up in Egyptology and all of the different mythical systems all integrated in one. You bow hand and foot. Now you don't even know if Jesus is Lord. Am I telling the truth? Now you don't even know if Jesus is Lord. Right. Because you allow them to take you into the labyrinth. That's a whole nother story. It's called the circle of the wizard. Once you get trapped inside Harry Potter's circle of the wizard, this is a dangerous thing. You will never find your way out. Some people get trapped in the the circle. Did y'all hear what I just stated? This is why letting your kids just rip and run into all kind of crazy mystical stuff is a bad deal. 
because you and I don't have authority over the sanctuary of their heart and mind. Kids can go wherever they want to go. You can't. You, you, and if you're a child of God, you're not going to follow them there. But you can't stop them from going once you let them inside the circle of the wizard. This is called the matrix. This is why they're rising up, having so much dysphoria about their gender. Did you hear what I just stated? Confused is the Babylonian kingdom. This is what's going on because we didn't we weren't good gatekeepers. Once the falling away occurs, then that man of sin shall be what? Right. Don't fall prey to archaic thinking. That man is not one man. That man is many men. That man is not just many men. He is not a natural organic man. He is the exact opposite of a natural organic man. He is your synthetic man. He is your technological man. He is your artificial intelligence man. Do you guys get what I just stated? That's what he is. That's the paradox. That's the paradox. He's ubiquitous now. He's everywhere present. He's pervasive now. He has a pseudo omniscience about him. He has a pseudo omnipotence about him. He has massive control over billions of people now. Did you guys understand what I just said? He has God-like powers. Do you guys see that? Right. And so powerful is he that the vast majority of the world will not want you to deliver them from him. Right. Because the vast majority of the world has already leaned into subjugation to that system. And some of us are, are, are way too close for comfort. Am I making some sense? Right. So if we were thinking, somebody do some walking with the mics for me. There you go. If we were thinking, through, if we were thinking, what, how am I, you guys, uh, uh, three or four questions and we're done. Raise your hand if you got, got any questions. If not, then we, we cool. I'll shut it down. We're, we're cool. I'll shut it down. If we're, if we're thinking, what you and I want to be thinking about is making sure that we have vision, understand God's vision, and that our life is operating in accordance with that vision at the simple practical level. I'm not asking you to be, uh, I'm not asking you to be esoteric or profound at all. Um, but what I'm getting at is that when a believer understands who he is, then his life will strive to operate in accordance with that calling. Did that make some sense? You will be, you will be living on purpose. And that purpose will always be consistent with God's larger objective of witness bearing for the salvation of sinners and the rest, restoration of rebel saints. And that is inclusive of every field of discipline in our life. In other words, not everybody's called to be a preacher or a teacher, but we are all called to be witnesses everywhere. Do you hear what I just say? Everywhere, everywhere we're called to be a temple. And at any given time, God can open your doors and the water can flow out and be a blessing to somebody. And that's what you got to know. You got to actually know that you can actually simultaneous to the deconstruction of this world system. Also be building up at the same time. 
Because, I'm going to stop it here. It didn't end here. It looked like it was going to end there. But because of what they did in their preemptive labors, they established an opportunity for new temples to go into the reset. And we had at least 1,500 years of prominent gospel presence in the world because of what they did before the collapse of the fourth beast. Did that make some sense? That's why you and I are saved. All right, let's talk. All right, go ahead on, Miss Jackie. Okay. So what I learned from the temple tonight, that my outer core temple and my inner core temple is very, well, the outer core temple is where maybe where I'm being attacked um, by the world system or the world or people. My inner core system, my inner temple is where I believe the Holy Spirit is and where he protects me. Um, And even though I'm being attacked, he gives me discernment, knowledge to discern what I'm looking at and be visionary about it and to also cast that net to bring in more people into into the kingdom of God. And um, through this fight or battle for my inner court, of course there's time where I doubt or, or even question, but also the vision comes back or sometimes I go back where he's brought me out of something and been victorious in it through him. Is that, is that a question or is that an exclamation? Exclamation. Good. I, I totally agree with her. I totally agree with her. Do you? Totally agree with her. I could frame it a little bit better, but super glad about it. She's owning the tension between an external diminishing, or as Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, though our outward man perish, our inward man is being renewed daily. That, that, paradoxical tension needs to be owned by the believer. Too many times believers collapse under paying too much attention to their outward temple. Because see, the world is only valuing the outward temple. Does that make some sense? And I I told you guys this last week and I I said frequently, and I said it last Tuesday, and I'm going to say it again. Learn how to live with discomfort. You have to learn how to live with discomfort because you're not in a state of total teleos yet. You're not in the tetelestai state. It is finished. It's not finished in the sense of our journey through. Okay? So in the world, you're going to have the thalipses, the tribulation, and you learn to be comfortable with it. Ah, I was listening to this brother who was a Navy SEAL. See, I study all kind of stuff, so I'm, 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 I'm planning on, you know, exercising some Navy SEAL stuff. And one of the things they were saying, this brother, he's just a cool brother. Many of them are Christians. He said, uh, people don't know that they can handle way more pain than they think. 
And that's one of the secrets of perseverance. He says people don't know that even when their body is screaming, quit. You can push through that 10 more times. He said way more times than you even imagine you can push through that. That means our body is actually trying to trick our minds into getting out of an assignment by which it would be compelled to grow. Does that make some sense? Because it does, it'll tell you, man, we're going to just, we're going to die, man. You can't do another push up. You're going to die. Can't you feel your heart just beating? Yes, beating. Because you're being pushed to that next level. And when you read Pauline theology, you see him becoming a Navy SEAL spiritually. I, I, I buffet my body. Right. This is about being able to uh, push through limitations and see God keep you through them. Am I making some sense here? Yeah. Right. And, 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 and therefore own. So what happens is I shouldn't even stay here long because I know you get it already. Growth requires embracing pain. And, 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 and that pain is not overwhelming. It's just challenging until you acclimate. Once you acclimate, you know, your pain becomes your friend. Because it tempers you mentally. It keeps you conscious that intrinsically you have limitations. But God is with you. God's keeping you, right? This is how Paul could go. My strength is made perfect through my weakness. He caught that, didn't he? All right, who has the mic? Ladies, ladies, ladies. Go on. I don't want to sound retarded, but it's probably going to be retarded. So AI, part of me wants to learn it so I can be discerning on when it's happening. And the other part, I don't know if I'm afraid or if I want to just lean on God for his AI. Mm -hmm. And because I still am out there in the world, Mm -hmm. and I'm just uncomfortable, like I'm more comfortable with reading crappy news than actually listening to this. Mm -hmm. And so um, I'm just like uncomfortable kind of all the time. And uh, it gets a little weary, and, and... Sometimes I, I just feel like uh, I'm too, like, embarrassed because of my thoughts of what I'm thinking about because I'm not being godlike. Mm-hmm. That it keeps me um, from thinking of myself as a temple or seeking God. Um, so I'm just kind of mixed up with the whole AI thing and what it is with, to be a Christian and it's AI like learning the computer. Like if I didn't know the computer, then I couldn't really no, that's navigate. Sim- that's super simple. No. So computer systems are not the same as artificial intelligence at the level for which general artificial intelligence and hyper artificial intelligence are operating right now. So learning, you, learning how to employ the technology. I'll talk more about this down the line. Uh, the technology is not the problem. It's actually the the 
engineers behind it that are the problem, okay? And even that, I'm being simplistic for time's sake. So what I mean is a lot of us are already integrated in the technology of the computer world, and, and, and necessarily and unavoidably so. That's not what we mean by being trapped by AI, not even close. So you would want to do a little bit of study on how artificial intelligence is so deeply behind the scenes at the level of algorithms and data mining and reframing programs for the purpose of positioning itself to be able to both service and enslave humanity. That's a whole set of realities operating behind the scenes of something that is um, immediately serviceable to you, like the data information uh, quantifier that is inside our phones. All this is needed. The, the phone is needed. Our ability to communicate is needed. It's operating in a neutral space relative to our needs of it. <clears throat> what we have to negotiate is what's happening at second and tertiary levels of data mining that's occurring and refabricating uh, personal character traits and, 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 and avatar uh, replicas for the future. That we have to begin to work through. You have to also know that there are many scientists who are good, believing scientists who are working through these systems as well. That's why I, I drilled you today about people being in different places. You cannot have a false understanding of the black and white notion of this battle. We got great believers on the inside trying to understand where the, where the nexus of the danger is in this technology that is unavoidable for us, okay? And when they can frame it well, <clears throat> they'll help us understand what we need to watch for. Some of us can go in and pick up on, on some of it, and, and you probably could too, but you would have to have a clear mission uh, statement for yourself. Why am I investing myself trying to understand it? I want to understand it in order that I can help people differentiate between the good and bad of 21st century technology. Did that make some sense? Right, because otherwise you're going to create a level of hypocrisy in your position that's going to be unavoidable because you're going to be using that technology anyway. So that we're using it means that there has to be a necessary component of it as part of our life. Uh, just learning how to avoid the aspects of the availability of that vast resource of information is where discipline comes in at, where meaning comes in at, where purpose comes in at. The one thing you, we have to all try to be able to do frequently is exercise autonomy. You have to be able to practice what it means to liberate yourself from it from time to time, not too infrequently. What I mean is you have to know how to disengage the grid. You have to know how to live organically. That's going to be a beeline to my point right there. And, and some of us don't have any idea of what an organic life is. And in a minute, sis, please understand what I'm saying, because I'm talking to groups of people all over the place. Some of us know that we are trying to build these spaces where organic life can be lived. And, and then also um, 
transport it in small models to anyone who wants to be able to live more organically and disattached from this system so as to prove that you are not addicted to it, which is the same as enslaved to it. Did that make some sense? Right. We're going to be expanding on that in the weeks and months to come. The, the reason why I pulled this text up that was there and I didn't even expand fully on it is simply to say that the man of sin, the son of perdition, will occupy the hearts of every human being who does not have the high priest as his shield. And that son of perdition will be the false God that dominates their life and bring them into the artificial world that we are seeing happening at the level of transition from organic man to homo deus uh, and and, 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 uh, artificial intelligence, even with our physical bodies. We're seeing it. You guys agree with me? We're seeing it. And that they're attacking the kids and doing it with the kids are an indication that the home is not a temple with the high priest in it anymore. Because if the high priest was in it, the kids would be protected. But see, they dismantled the homes of many of our cultures 50, 60, 70 years ago. They did that by design. I told you, they inverted the process of God, Christ, man, and woman. Because without God, Christ, man, and woman, you cannot have a godly family. And many of us did not grow up in godly families. We grew up with it inverted. The woman is on top. The man is underneath the woman. Christ is a little icon that you rub whenever you want to get out of trouble. And God is anything you want to make him, including the universe. That's the inverted world we've been living in for a long time. I grew up in that world. Y'all keeping up with me? This is why now the only thing to do is go after the kids because they don't want to have to have to pull the kids down out of that hierarchy. They want to get them on the ground. I could tell you a whole lot more. Who else has the mic? But if you go in, if you go in, you're smart enough to go in. You've got to go in missionally. Who has the mic? Okay, go ahead on my brother. Help him, man. He's scared. Help yes, him. sir. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, you said the last time uh, I was here. First of all, I just have to let you know, Pastor Jesse, you asked the question. You said something before, and I heard you say, do I frighten you? And I wanted to say, no, you don't, you don't scare me, but you do frighten me. <laughs> you frighten me with the truth. Okay, because the truth, I've been hearing it, and I said, oh, man, did he say AI? And when I heard what the young lady just said right then, I've been hearing it over and over. Then you said you went down and went to the store to see if you had money and you want to spend your money. And I asked my wife. I told my wife what you said. She said, yeah, I went to a place, and you couldn't spend your money. You had to have a card. I went right across this street over here to get air in my tire. And it had where you put a quarter in. Now, if you don't have a card, you can't get air. So I was like, oh, my God, they're taking air. You got to have a card for that. And just recently, I hope this is not true, but they just recently say they want to get rid of money. Don't say yes, please, because that really scares me right there. 
They want to get rid of money and put it. So I said, oh, my God, do you talking about frightening? Yes, that is frightening. But I know God is in control, and God is in control of this house, and God is going to protect me. He's going to protect his children. I know that. We're going we're gonna to get through that. He's going to protect us. But the last thing I want to do with this microphone, I want to apologize to Eric. I want to say the other young lady's name. I have to. Her name was Maury. Mm-hmm. I was in this parking lot last Sunday and was having a little problem with a guy with my car. And he brought out the worst in me. And she looked at me and looked through my spirit and told me, that's the Lord trying to get that out of you. And it was anger or something. I don't know what it was, but I was angry. And Eric was right there. And he, the last one, told me, walk over to that guy and shake his hand. Oh, my God, did that. I don't know if that's pride. I don't know if that's pride inside of me. But I did not want to walk over there. But I just... Listen at you today, I knew if I would walk over there when the guy tried to, he really made me mad. But if I would have walked over there and just say, how you doing? And start talking to him, I probably could have brought him to God right then. And I just want to let y'all know, I'm going to keep learning. I'm going to keep coming here. And y'all, please forgive me and put up with me. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Who else has the mic? Go on, young brother. Um, I say about the temple of God, and uh, I say I've been uh, homeless for a year, and uh, my family passed away, and um, I say uh, it just opened me up, and hit hit his message, and um, I said I've been called all kind of names. I be called all kind of names, feces, stink. I be called all kind of names in the book, but they don't, they don't want to call me a child of God, and I want to come back with child of God. That's all I want to do. That's why I'm here today, trying to receive Christ in my life again. And that's all I want to do. I'm, I'm tired. I'm tired of living like this. I'm really tired of living like this. Yeah, just keep me up, y'all pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 When we're done, I'm going to need a couple, two or three wise brothers to talk to him. Okay? Wise brothers, not the, not the young brothers, the wise brothers. What, what's his name, Terry? Donahue? Donovan. Okay. All right. You guys keep Donovan in prayer. Donovan got a long journey to go. Who has the mic? Oh, Bo, with Lamont. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, I kind of had a question. I mean, this is a very, very good study. I thank God for you, and I thank you for delivering. Um, is that your grandson over there? Yes, Jordan Caleb Ray Dell Bohoman over there. <laughs> Little rockhead. <laughs> anyway. Um, All right, unpack, Bo, unpack. No, 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 this is a question. Um, the temple of God, or the temple of the Lord, um, and it's, you know, full. Could it, I'll just get right to the chase. Does that not represent when Christ is there, heaven? 
And at the same time, you know, while we're in tabernacles on the earth, but we represent, you know, that eternality of heaven. Yeah, now you know you know that already. I mean, I guess I could affirm it. I'm going to talk about this on Sunday because we're going to that place with Moses in, in Exodus 24. So I'm affirm that because the emblem of blue is the emblem of heaven, and it's a translucent sapphire that is associated with, with God's epiphany. We're going to be looking at that. But, you know, men Lamont go all the way back to high school, so I'm, I'm just thinking he's just wanting me to do the ex- explanation and not him. Um, but, but the point... The point the you know point, I've always wanted you to do that. Yeah, the, the point is, is that a synecdotally, a synecdote, this is called a synecdote. I'm going to do a little grammar for you guys. Most of you guys know this, like anecdotes. A synecdote is a, uh, a form of speech that takes a part and uses a part to represent the whole. Synecdotalism is an efficiency of, of economy of words too. This is why you and I learn so much from symbolism. So I'm going to use a metaphor and then I'm going to affirm what Lamont is saying. Even though the proposition is simple, wherever God is, is that not heaven? That proposition is so simple and purely like logically coherent. You would know that, right? We would all know that. And yet it can be explored in in theological ways in in such comforting and clarifying uh, insights that, you know, I'm tempted to want to do some of that, but I'm not. Um, and I'm probably glad Lamont didn't either. But of course, wherever God is, that is heaven. So you're going to hear heaven is his throne and the earth is his footstool. You're going to hear that. And when you capture it, I'm talking about it Sunday. You're going to know then that temple encompasses eternity with God separated from everything that's not like God. You're going you're gonna to learn that, right? And, and, and that's what I meant too earlier when I was saying that when you read six or seven times in the New Testament that we are the temple of God, that's, that's crazy huge. It's way beyond uh, imagination, okay? I'm just like, a lot of us take words seriously. And if you don't, you know, you're missing out on the beauty and splendor of the promises of the Bible. Think about it. If you're the temple of God, then you constitute in relationship with God an eternity of heavenliness that excludes all possible variations and evils that we are now struggling with. So there is an eschatological reality to you and me that merits what Paul meant in 1 Corinthians 2 when he says, I have not seen nor ear heard nor has it entered into the heart of man the fullness of the implications of what it means to be in Christ. Right. This is, the New Testament is clear with these, these indicators of the massive fullness that is contained in the finiteness of Christ's incarnation. So that is the paradoxical nature of it. We get to wrestle with who Jesus is because he's God reduced in a human construct 
for us to be able to have some kind of corresponding relationship, understanding, and, and all of that. Because if you deal with God in his unlimited ontological essence, it's beyond comprehension. It begins, it begins to be uh, unattainable. Did that make some sense? Like the unattainableness of God, if God did not put this horizon of the incarnation into play for you and me, um, we would never be able to have fellowship with God. It would be an absurdity, which is what the unsaved people think when we when they think about us and how we think about God. They go, that's absurd. Of course it is, because you haven't had a revelation of the infinite made finite in the person of Christ in order that we might be partakers of that infinite. Did that make some sense? Partakers of the divine nature. It's crazy. It's, it's crazy. It, it's crazy. See, there you go. There you go. He said, I didn't got his cup stirred up. I got to let him go. Got to let it, it, Yes. Yeah. 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 That's the black and white. And, and, and if we can. So what horizons are for, this is what a horizon is for. Horizons are for you to be able to distinguish light from darkness. So this is the way you, the Genesis narrative verses one through three gave us the warfare. It created the horizon between the night and the day and the darkness and the light. Understanding horizons are critical. Remember when I told you that the goal of the wizard is to get you inside a circle? Because once you're in a circle, there are no horizons in a circle. He has so many things going on in his circle that you can't find an exit. Because you see, his whole thing moves in every different direction. He has no order to it. So, and that's what's happening in our world right now. The unreal of our world is forcing itself into a position where it's demanding that you call it real. Did you hear what I just stated? And, 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 and you know, it's one thing for those fools to want to live in that unreal. I'm fine with that because I believe in freedom. So like if you want to walk around and, 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 and pretend you're a unicorn, that's cool. But you don't get to come poop in my yard because you're a unicorn. This is what I mean by horizons. This is what I mean by horizons. You know, do you understand what I mean? Horizons are boundaries. That is the Greek term, Aries. Listen carefully. This is so important because principles of horizon have their origin in our very being. Because God created us in his image and therefore he created us with horizons as a framework of distinguishing between true and false and right and wrong and light and darkness and heaven and hell and gods and devils and men and angels. Those categories are essential. And when you got a system like ours that's saying, no, those categories are not essential. You can be whatever you want to be then what it wants to do is get rid of the handiwork of God that has called us to order out of chaos and eternity in God versus eternity without God. 
in a state of eternal darkness and a perpetual state of confusion and chaos and fear and doubt and struggle. Because we, we, we know the spiral down, don't we? We know the spiral down. The ascent, the matriculation up is a walk of faith and it's a battle. That, 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 that upward, so, so many things. So even when Jesus ascends into heaven, that is a transcendent optic that he gives us. He lets us know that where I am, you may be also. And so operating out of that high state of being seated at the right hand of God in the heavenlies, which is in Christ, is that upstream vision that Paul has. So when the believer is operating out of that upstream vision, we are operating out of who we are in Christ. And that regulates how I function down here. Does that make some sense? Right. So, you know, set your affections on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. That kind of now that's a reconciling of where you are positionally with what you do practically. And this will always keep you and me in a position of being a river flow for people. And that's what you want to be. And you want to be able to be that child of God in the craziest situations. Like this brother here, Donovan. Donovan is operating out of a terrible paradox. Is he? So how many of us in here have been homeless? I'm not, I mean real homeless like Donovan. You can keep your hand up. So now we're down to two. Donna, I don't believe you. That was on purpose because you had family you could have went to. Stop. All right. So the same thing. Some of us did this crazy stuff that we got out there, act a fool, and our families loved on us enough not to answer the phone. So we was homeless for two days. <laughs> okay. I was homeless. My point is that some of our brothers and sisters have spiraled down so far into the dark side of the matrix that they, they, are, they are maladjusted in that darkness, but you can hear Donovan crying out. He got a long journey to go. Because I, I got to get my brothers to vet him to make sure he's not lying just to get some dope money. I grew up in the hood. I'm not emotional. I've done this many, many times. So, Christian folks can't be dumb. You, you, can't have dumb. you can't have dumb pastors. Do you understand? That's right. Because sucker's born every day. So we're going to vet him, and hopefully we can help him. But I've got a bunch of brothers out there walking the street because they want to. Did y'all hear what I just said? So... Um, who has the mic? Because I'll go ahead on, James. We're going to close here. I just want to ask you a question about the last verse you had up there. You explained the falling away in Second Thessalonians. Because I always was taught, since he was addressing the church, he was alerting the church that there was going to be a falling away. But the falling away is not going to be from the outside. It's going to be from the inside. Well, that's what it always is. So what's going on in terms of the world, that's not a falling away. A falling away is what Judas Iscariot did. It's what Korodath and Abiram did. It's what Nadab and Abihu did. A falling away is when you're inside the system and then you abandon the system. And what that text is teaching is that 
you can fall away inside the system and not even go away. Because what it is, is it's abandoning the doctrine that constitutes your identity in connection with God. And many of our churches in the West are done. They're done. They have already been overtaken by Marxism. I I taught you guys this even through our COVID classes. Uh, Peter Drucker played a role in hoodwinking um, um, the boy down in Southern California, um, you know, with Purpose Driven Life, Rick Rick Warren. Mm -hmm. And Rick Warren with a whole bunch of other cats brought in the dialectical process of communism, meaning all roads lead to Rome. And a lot of people bought into that. And he's completely hooked up with the trans movement and all that, as many of the churches are. Every church that bought into the woke doctrine, they're, they're apostate. Every church that bought into the woke doctrine showed us that there were no roots in the ground. No roots in the ground. So the woke doctrine is a bottom attack at the ground level, and globalism is a top attack at the bigger, uh, larger business levels. On the ground, getting men and women to buy into race as the number one thing that constitutes your identity is the big lie of Marxism. It is social politics at the ground level where what, what matters is quid pro quo. At that point, you're back under legalism because you want to punish other people for crimes that their great-great-grandparents committed, and you want to go into a lot of what's happening with our young people attacking people. So our young people are now attacking white people like as if that's somehow the gospel. And, and it's really sad, but this is what happens when we fail to understand Scripture. Revelation chapter 13 says, if you live by the sword, you'll die by it. See, Jesus taught us how to overcome it. And what they did with Martin Luther King's era, people don't understand this, Martin Luther King, there was an impulse on him to want to go fascistic and and go violent because many of the um, liberal, uh, black liberation uh, theologians were inclining him to go that route that we need to fight for power and, and use power to fight. And he said, no, they will squash us like they've done around the world because that's what they want to do. And so rather than him employing power, because Martin Luther, Luther King had a lot of pull, he, 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 he imitated Christ. He was taken out. Okay? And, and so he modeled passive uh, resistance. And that passive resistance kept black people from going through a massive Tiananmen Square type of thing because, you know, You're not going to win. You're not going to beat Satan's system by force. You're going to beat him by humility and wisdom. You're going to beat him by humility and wisdom. You're going to beat him by humility. This is the patience of the saints by humility and wisdom. And and some of that's going to require suffering. People really overcome through suffering. And Africans, African-Americans should have known this. We've always triumphed through suffering. We've always triumphed through something. Again, I'm going through Frederick Douglass and, uh, and uh, my other boy, he'll come up in a moment, Booker T. Washington. I'm going back through their stuff right now because I, I said, you know what? They have a lot to teach us about how to navigate oppression. But they didn't buy into the politics of the left-right narrative. They didn't buy into it. And so in your black community, Booker T. and... Uh, uh, and, and uh, Frederick Douglass and a few others are completely censored. When you read their writings, you go, whoa, 
These cats saw this early on. Like, whoa, they got insight. And the other thing about what you get when you read them, as I'm doing, is they were way too close to Christ for comfort for our political elements in the black community. Do you see what I get? See what I'm getting at? They saw the gospel and they knew how to map it on to reality and practicate it in terms of believing that God could raise you up as an individual and raise you up as a community to live independently from the system, but not hostile against it. That's Christianity. And, and because they are proffers of a Christian model of success, that militates against a Marxist, totalitarian, hostile, fascist system that you and I are dealing with now. And I only say that because what King did got hijacked by this woke system under Black Lives Matter. And we had already told you guys that Black Lives Matter was for ending the patriarchal, biblical model of family and inserting the transgender community. I told you back, you know, in 2018, listen, in a few minutes, it ain't gonna even be about black people. Black people need to stop that. The black people thing is way over with. We're in the trans now. We're way, I told you, I told you guys that back then. I said, dealing with the left, right, we're going to be in the trans in a few minutes and that's going to be the big thing. So folks running around talking about, I'm black, I'm black. Okay, you can talk black, but the reality is, is that we have already put an end to anything constituting race. We're at transgender now. The next one is pedophilia and bestiality in terms of them actually becoming persons and entities indistinguishable from humans. Please understand that's where we are now. And if the unreal replaces the real, in, in our educational system and in the media system. The unreal replacing the real will be so easy to dupe most people because they cannot even distinguish the real from the unreal in the bots that are being employed right now in the metaverse that are taking up pseudo positions of being real. Does that make sense? This is really a tragic thing that has to do with with properly perceiving what's going on in your world. And this is where you have to ask God to give you discernment. Because in a minute, there will be billions of bots that will be duplications of friends and loved ones. Anytime you use that, that medium, the phone, or any technology, you will never know whether or not you're talking to a real person. Right now, we are in, in, in Washington right now, and they're trying to do this around the world because good moral ethical ethicist scientists recognizes how AI has actually been able to so mimic the voice and, and gestures and patterns of people that they know now people can't distinguish anymore. So now just think about this. I'm glad you guys are being patient because this is the stuff I think about a lot because it's right up on us. It's about to happen. It is actually already happening on the periphery and it's going to squeeze all the way in. When you and I get to a place where we are so comfortable with communicating via this uh, artificial intelligence to where we don't have that discernment mechanism operating at all times, where you don't take the lag time between your conversations to go, wait a minute. Is it possible I'm dealing with a bot? Just that amount of space right there will often save you because what you and I have to do is maintain objectivity. Did that make some sense? You have to maintain objectivity. You can't go into an autonomic reciprocal relationship 
with anything that is a consequence of the medium. Like, see, you and I can talk like this because we're here. You know I'm real, okay? After a while, they're going to have halogens with pixel levels that are so phenomenal, they're not quite ready, they're not quite this real. You see them on TV and all that. They can trick you there, but they're not going to trick you here yet. This is what I love about studying this stuff, because I do. There are a lot of failures going on in AI that are giving the scientists hope because the AI is not as smart as some scientists have said that they are. They are not that smart because their masters are stupid. (laughs) Really, their masters are stupid. But for me, the problem is that um, human beings are becoming more and more ignorant, too. So this is what happened. This is the Vanity Fair that that John Bunyan warned us about. He warned us about entertainment that would make us stupid. He warned us about that. And so Westerners are dumb. Westerners are gullible. Westerners love being drunk. Westerners love BSing each other. Once you live in the world of BS, you uproot yourself from any real healthy shield of discernment. This is what I warned us about, about, about BSing. BSing is the idea of being comfortable with living in ethereal, hypothetical, non-concrete worlds that we frame the way we talk. Y'all hear what I'm saying? And we're good at that as societies. Problem is, it makes you vulnerable to all kind of myths. And, and thinking clearly and thinking consistently, discerningly, requires waking up uh, earnestly putting on, putting on your armor because we're susceptible to deception. Remember what Jesus said, let no man deceive you. That's the first thing he said, let no man deceive you. What was he saying? We are gullible to deception. Deception for us is like I was saying in the marriage class. You know, I thank God for the grace of so many people listening to me. Relationships start off frequently on deception because they're operating at an emotional level of desire, wanting to be met, that allows itself to play the game. And, And playing the game is okay as long as you don't play the game to harm. Does that make some sense? Right. And, and you got to know the difference between and then you got to play the game of, let's say, romance and desire and all that in a way in which all it's doing is giving two people the comfortability of getting closer. What you do, what you're doing, because this is true with your kids, you got to know this. You got to know this. Your kids play those games all the time. And what you're doing is you're wrestling as an adult between staying objective and rational and then trying to go in and out of their world. Is this okay for me to talk about? Because I don't want you to be dumb. Because some of our kids have a hard time with reality. And this is where CPS comes in. And CPS is swooping them up by the thousands every day. And all they're simply doing is saying, are you uncomfortable around your parents? Uh Uh-huh. We got a cause to scoop them up. (laughs) So you understand what I'm getting at? So this is why you got to understand play in a healthy way and then seriousness in a real serious way. 
we want to play only, with, only to the degree that we are developing authentic closeness with people. But, but you got to vet that play. Do you see what I'm getting at? And it would be the same thing in the community of faith. So like I'm a pastor of several hundred of you folks here. And, and you know, I watch. And, you know, that's my job. And I see how we interact. And, and some of us do a good job at balancing the play and other, others of us don't. And when you don't balance that play right, you hurt somebody. Am I telling the truth? Right, you hurt somebody. And we all have to be guardians of the play. Guardians of love. Guardians of, of closeness. We got to be guardians of it, both vertically, adults down to children, because we still got a lot of children, and adults across the spectrum of peers. We got to know. We got to know how to be respectful. We got to know how to promote truth. We got to know how to play only to the point of allowing each of us to be authentic with each other, where we have earned that authenticity. All right. Stand with me in prayer so we can shut it down. James, oh, you, you did ask your question. Yeah. All right. And then I'll need a couple of brothers to help me uh, marshal this down. And uh, we'll meet again Tuesday. And then by next Friday, we'll be out. We'll see you guys on Sunday, Lord willing. Thank you, Father, for such a uh, hungry group of people. Um, and we thank you for the revelation of your word. We thank you for the truth. We thank you for the presence of your spirit. We thank you for the presence of Christ. We thank you for showing us the revelation. We see the temple, oh God. We see the fullness of the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the flow of the river of water of life and the trees of life on either side. And we pray that we would be granted to be partakers of that tree of life and drink from that river. And then also be mobile temples that can be a blessing to anyone, anytime that you want to appear in their life through us. As we go our way, give us uh, traveling mercies, prepare us to worship you on Sunday. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen, 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 amen.